I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When a stunning single mother of two is found stabbed to death in her own home. The wound was very deep and it cut through the arteries that ran through her neck. Holiday cheer is the last thing on the minds of St. Albans, West Virginia residents. You don't assume that you're going to look out your window and see police tape three days after Christmas. But is the Christmas killer one of their own or has a stranger come to town? I just could not believe it. I was putting it all together on who could it be? Who could have hurt her? To solve the mystery, detectives have to decipher a cryptic message. The words cheating whore have been written on the wall and it was... Who wrote that? Why would they write that? If police can read between the lines, maybe they can spell out the killer's identity. Given what we knew about the scene, my impression was this could be the guy. How well do you know your neighbors? What lies behind the white picket fences? Anchored just 15 miles upriver from Charleston, is the waterfront town of St. Albans, West Virginia. In the shadow of the state capital, St. Albans offers the perfect combination of country charm and small-town living. A lot of people do commute in and out of the city, but it's still a small town. People kind of know each other, know each other's business, and everybody wants to help you out. 10,000 people call St. Albans home, but everyone's considered a neighbor. Nobody's ever met a stranger here. There's this sense of familiarity, of camaraderie. There is this inherent pride that people feel for their community. It's this sense of belonging that 32-year-old Stacy Smith adores about her lifelong stomping ground. Everybody knew Stacy. She knew everyone in the community. She was very well-known, very outgoing. Even with a bevy of besties, none of them compared to Marlene Hardwick. Stacy's mother and closest confidant. Stacy and I were best friends. I mean, she would tell me anything. She was a lot of fun. She was crazy. She just loved to laugh. She was positive. I mean, she was just a go-getter. After graduating from high school, Stacy has her heart set on a nursing career. But soon finds her true calling 
in marriage and motherhood. They had a beautiful marriage. More than anything, she just wanted kids. Stacy's prayers are answered with the birth of her two little darlings, Shania and Brody. Stacy was very active with her children. She would ride bikes with them, uh, get out and play baseball with them. And if they swam, she swam, and she was always with her kids. But after eight years of marriage, this hometown honey finds herself with a broken heart. Things didn't go too good and ended up in a divorce. The house that she was at, they had sold it. She had to have a place to stay. But Stacy doesn't waste any time getting her life back together. She finds a new boyfriend and a new home for herself and her children. The two-room cottage on Carson Street is just a few miles from her mom. Of course, it upset me. I wanted her to stay with me. I wasn't so crazy about the house that she was moving into. It seems mom's instincts are dead right. On December 28th, just four days after Stacy moves into her new digs, Marlene gets a frantic phone call from Stacy's friend. Seems Stacy hasn't picked up her daughter after an overnight at a friend's house, and she isn't answering her phone. She'd been trying to call Stacy all morning. And I thought, well, maybe she's sleeping in. But then again, it was kind of weird. She would always answer her phone. Worried something's amiss, Marlene has Stacy's father head to the house to check on her. And I got a little bit panicky. Her father worked a few blocks away from the house, and he said he would do it. What he finds is a father's worst nightmare. The front door is locked, and Stacy's three-year-old son seems to be home alone. And he was trying to speak to him to try to get the door open. He went around to the back and kept talking her son into trying to get a chair and climb up and let him in. Once inside, Grandpa finds Brody terrified. He picked Stacy's son up and wanted to know where Mommy was, and he kept saying, Mommy's asleep, Mommy's sleeping. When Stacy's father enters the kitchen, his worst fears are realized. His darling daughter is lying dead in a pool of blood on the floor. He frantically dials 911 and carries little Brody out of the room. At the St. Albans Police Department, shift supervisor Captain Jim Agee is still trying to digest his Christmas goose. Criminals tend to take a break in the holiday season. Apparently, this killer didn't get the memo. We were dispatched by 911 to a person down and a lot of blood around. When I arrived at the scene, we encountered the father and then Stacy's small child. A father himself, Captain Agee's first thought is to protect the little boy from the chill in the air, if not the chilling sight. There's a jacket laying in the floor of the living room. So, well, let's put this jacket around. It was obviously an adult-sized jacket. I said, whoa, 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 whose jacket is that? And her son responded, well, that's Timmy's. We asked, well, who's Timmy? It's mommy's friend. A.G. makes a mental note. But for the moment, the captain sends Grandpa and Brody out of the House of Horrors and turns back to the grim scene, alone. I saw a deceased female and large amount of blood around her body. And we were thinking of stabbing because of the amount of blood. And we definitely weren't were thinking more than one wound. And there is that thought, my gosh, she was murdered. 
following the trail of blood to Stacy's bedroom, Captain Agee has a theory about how this terrible scene unfolded. She was laying in bed. It was where the attack started. She possibly got up in either some sort of anger or or trying to protect herself or other, some other reason came into the, the kitchen where she ended up dying. But the body on the floor only tells half the story. As Captain Agee walks into the living room, something stops him cold. We see this big, giant letters written in, in a marker, you know, cheating whore. To see that, we know it's significant, but we, again, we don't know why it was written. Was that there's a ruse? Or did the perpetrator put it there on purpose? Either way, it seems the killer was trying to send a message. And outside the house, another question mark awaits. One thing that was missing was her vehicle. It was not in the driveway. It was not on the street. That doesn't fit. Did Stacy's killer use it as a getaway car? If Captain Agee finds the vehicle, maybe he'll have found the murderer. So he puts out a bolo for the car and launches a homicide investigation bigger than any St. Albans has seen before. I'm the shift commander for that day, so it's my responsibility to get things going. I call Detective Elkins. Rookie detective Kevin Elkins may be young, but like a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback, there's no better pick for this case. And for him, the assignment is like winning the Super Bowl. I was a patrol officer here at St. Albans just over three years before I went to the detective bureau. I've always wanted to be a detective as long as I can remember. Elkins has his eye on the prize as he makes his first pass at the case, revisiting the crime scene. Captain Agee informs me what we had, and at first it was like, it's game time. Crime techs dust for prints and swab for DNA. But for now, they don't find anything. It's the fact that the killer left no obvious trace, except for the writing on the wall, that speaks volumes to Detective Elkins. Because of the doors being locked, the house not being torn all apart, yeah, someone she had let into her home. Wasn't like some stranger just come kick the door in or broken in. She probably trusted. So why did he betray her trust? Elkins' best guess is that whoever murdered Stacy was someone who loved her, lost her, and wanted revenge. I first saw the, the cheating whore, my initial reaction was, was someone that was involved in a relationship with her. And who would know better than Stacy's best friend? Her mother, Marlene. So Elkins makes the tough call to tell mom about the tragedy. When I received the phone call that Stacy was dead, I was devastated. But while the news hits Marlene like a runaway freight train, she's instantly on the track of the killer. And the first thought was it was her boyfriend. No one could change my mind. Stacy's boyfriend for the past year has been Spencer Dillon. And it seems Stacy's mom isn't the only one who's suspicious of him. Even Detective Elkins recalls they had a rocky relationship. They were like two high school kids because you could see them and they could be arguing one day. The next day you could see them and they were in love again. So you kind of recognize that when you'd run into them. But weeks before Stacy's murder, the roller coaster derails. They had arguments in front of me, which I tried to calm them both down. 
she was at the point that she was going to leave him. And I just felt like he really had somewhat of a temper. It's a great lead for this greenhorn gumshoe. And Elkins is on it like a blue tick coonhound on a scent. You're kind of energized to go do the job that needs to be done, trying to find your witnesses, of trying to find your suspect. And if Elkins has to scale the Appalachian Mountains to do it, he will. He'll stop at nothing to hunt this killer down. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Danger lurks in the American landscape. No one in their right mind would be out here, which makes it the perfect place to kill someone. Introducing Hot and Deadly from ID, your podcast for classic American true crime served with a side of biscuits and gravy. On each episode, you'll hear some of ID's most shocking stories of murder and betrayal, from the mystery of a preacher shot and killed by a bow and arrow to a former prom queen gone missing and found murdered. Listen to Hot and Deadly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In troubled times, townsfolk in St. Albans, West Virginia, look to the serene waters of the Kanawha River to calm their nerves. But just a few hours after Stacy Smith's murder, folks remain awash with anguish in the wake of the crime. I think people were shocked that something like this had happened in their community. You don't assume that you're gonna look out your window and see police tape three days after Christmas. With a cold-blooded killer on the loose and residents on edge, police are feeling the heat to crack this case. In a small town, there's a large amount of pressure on the police department to solve the case and solve it quickly. And no one's more aware of that than newbie detective Kevin Elkins. He's got something to prove to St. Albans residents and to himself. There was the initial, can I really do this? I mean, this is what I've always wanted, but can I do it? 
Elkins needs all the help he can get. And luckily, the coroner is in his corner. With one look at Stacy's body, he starts filling in the horrific details of her final moments. Stacy was stabbed in the neck, a large stab wound right around the carotid artery. So one fatal blow was all it took to drain the life from this loving young mother of two. But the Emmy's second observation could put detectives a step closer to finding her killer. Stacy was murdered after 2, 2.30 in the morning, around that time frame, or just after. That gives police a timeline they can use to verify the alibis of their suspects. And that's not all the coroner tells them. He finds semen in Stacy's body, proving that she had sexual intercourse prior to her death. But there's something even more telling about her encounter. There was no indication that would lead us to believe she was sexually assaulted. And that confirms Elkin's gut feeling that Stacy was murdered by someone she knew. But could that someone be her boyfriend of 12 months, Spencer Dillon, who's piqued the suspicions of both her mother and police? There was an urgency to speak with Spencer because I knew she had been dating Spencer, and maybe he was capable of doing it. It's an avenue that we have to investigate. Rookie Kevin Elkins is going to need some help investigating this promising perp, and he'll be in good hands. Veteran detective Captain Don Skurlock of the Kanawa Bureau of Investigation has more homicide cases under his belt than a West Virginia coal miner has time underground. And he's ready to bury himself in this one. When I get called out to a murder, I expect to work four days without my attention being diverted to anybody or anything else. But Skurlock's focus isn't his biggest asset. It's his confidence in his coworkers. And I know that, that this unit works as a team and the job will be accomplished. And when he checks in with his teammates, they bring him up to speed on Stacy's boyfriend, Spencer Dillon. And how Stacy's mom, Marlene, felt about him. She could never understand what her daughter saw in Spencer. He always accused her of cheating. He always accused her of doing things. He was just picking on her all the time, and she couldn't do anything right. And then finally, she just told me around Christmas, I just think I need to move on. Maybe Stacy told Spencer she wanted to call it quits. But he had other plans, so he put marker to wallboard and spelled out his thoughts in black and white. There was uh, some writing that said cheating whore, and based on that, that made Stacy's boyfriend someone that we wanted to talk to. With a reputation for losing his cool and a jealous streak longer than hometown hero Randy Barnes' gold medal shot put, investigators wonder if Spencer's wounded ego drove him to this crime of passion. It was a very intimate crime and had to be someone that was in the house. I started thinking if Spencer could actually do this. Could he get mad enough to do that, to hurt her like that? And there were just questions that I kept thinking about. It's not looking good for Spencer Dillon. And when he talks to detectives, he adds fuel to the fire, admitting he was at the scene of the crime just moments before the murder. He explained to the detectives what he had done that night, when he had left, what he was wearing. He provided them with the cell phone he had that night. Yes, it was there last night. Spencer fully admits to having sex with Stacy, which explains the semen found at autopsy. But he continues to deny that he killed her. 
he appeared very upset about that insinuation or accusation that, that he could be involved in it. He did appear legitimately emotional. While Spencer makes a big deal about his innocence, it's a tiny detail that catches Detective Skurlock's eye. There was one little speck of blood on the back of his shirt. Given what we had knew about the scene, that was of interest to us. When police question Spencer about the blood, he claims it's from a scratch he got a couple of days earlier. While there was an explanation for that blood on his shirt, there's always that, that bit of doubt that this could be the guy. The drop of blood prompts police to drop in on Dylan's digs. He was extremely cooperative. He consented to a search of his home. Police scour Spencer's place, looking for evidence linking him to Stacy's murder. But after an exhaustive search, they come away empty-handed. We didn't find any blood or any time evidence connecting him to the crime. So we were a little disappointed. But Detective Elkins isn't ready to throw in the towel just yet. We didn't want to rule him out altogether. We wanted him to take a polygraph, see the results from it, to ensure that he didn't have a part in it. But when Spencer returns the next day to take the test, he's not alone. He did have his attorney present. I was a little suspicious, and, you know, Spencer explained to me that it was his father's idea. And if Daddy's told Spencer to lawyer up, seems he's also taught him to tell the truth because Spencer passes the polygraph. The first thing Spencer Dillon did was he turned around and he said, I told you I didn't do this. But if Spencer's polygraph is clean, it doesn't wipe the blood spot off his shirt. So until his DNA profile comes back from the lab, he won't be off the hook. It's at times like this, when investigations are high and dry, that Detective Skurlock looks to the waters of the Kanawha for a catch of another kind. I'm kind of an outdoor guy. I like to fish. A lot of the things that you're involved in can be fairly toxic. I think is somewhat relaxing. I'll catch any fish that'll bite my hook. Back on dry land, when Skurlock reels in Spencer Dillon's DNA profile, he finds the blood spot on Spencer's shirt is his own taking him out of the suspect pool for good. So police start to fish around for a new suspect, and Skurlock soon gets a nibble that just might land him the big fish he's been angling for. Speaking with uh, some neighbors, we were given information that Stacy Smith's vehicle was missing. So detectives take off on a high-speed chase to find Stacy's wayward wheels. That was a big clue to our investigation. That led us down a lot of possibilities that we could pursue. Detective Elkins gets the license number and runs a check on the plates. But the result blindsides him like a pedestrian struck by a speeding car in a crosswalk. Seems the vehicle is registered to a Zach Bowen, a guy who isn't on police radar. It was very odd. We were still kind of confused of how this worked into this investigation. So detectives question Zach Bowen. It turns out he's Stacy's former co-worker. But the vehicle is a far cry from a company car. And it seems Bowen was mixing business with pleasure. He was married. He was paying for a, a nice vehicle. And that may have been something that his wife may have eventually discovered. And that obviously made him a person of interest. That person also had a motive to kill Stacy. The hunch grows stronger 
after Mr. Bowen reveals more about his relationship with Stacy. Zach had feelings for her at an affair several years prior. He had hoped one day they'd be married and living together. That was a twist that none of us saw. Now we definitely need to see where he was and what he was doing. But is this two-timing suspect hiding something from police as well as from his wife? When investigators questioned Zach Bowen about his whereabouts the day of the murder, the cheating hubby claims to have been at home. Police waste no time checking out this story. He'd been home. Uh, His family confirmed he had been home. With nothing linking Mr. Bowen to the murder, investigators have to let him walk. But before police leave, Zach Bowen shares a bit of news that sends the case shooting forward. Stacy's vehicle had OnStar. OnStar, it's like a GPS. OnStar was able to provide us with a location and the area the vehicle was traveling in. As detectives recalculate their direction, the signs point to finding Stacy's car as the key to catching her killer. Twenty-four hours after Stacy Smith's murder. It isn't the chilly mountain breeze that makes the citizens of St. Albans, West Virginia, fret and fiddle. It's the scuttlebutt about a killer in their midst. Reporter Catherine Gregory echoes the terrified chatter of the residents. Stacy Smith was, in the eyes of the community, one of their own. People were worried that there was a killer on the loose and other people in the community were at risk. Trusting that there's strength in numbers, a united St. Albans rallies around Stacy's distraught mother, Marlene. I had a whole house full of people. Stacy was such a popular person. She had lived in this neighborhood all her life. Everybody was in disbelief. Getting closure for distressed families is what Kanawha County Prosecutor Mary Claire Akers does best. A local girl through and through, Miss Akers packs a powerful punch when it comes to one thing putting bad guys away. And this case is no exception. You want to find who did it as quickly as you can because we knew that anybody who would do something like that was likely to kill again. So Akers is relieved detectives have hit on a clue that could lead them to the killer as easily as following the GPS lady's directions. Seems Stacy's SUV has OnStar a tracking device that can pinpoint the exact location of the vehicle. And as it turns out, her car is on the move and heading towards a seedy part of town. When OnStar began relaying the the direction and the location of the vehicle, it was headed north on Route 35. Officers immediately uh, began heading that way. With a map leading police straight to a possible killer, It seems Detective Elkins has no roadblocks in sight. I'd say adrenaline was pumping. I also thought maybe we were right there closing in. Officers descend on the car. Faster than you can say, lickety-split. As officers arrived in the vehicle, Sergeant observed a, a white male walking away from the vehicle. When they told us there was a suspect walking away from the car, I thought, open and shut. This is our guy. So police stop the man and ask him a few questions. The male identified himself as Joseph Hardwick. He denied knowing the vehicle or driving the vehicle or anything like that. 
But investigators aren't drinking the Kool-Aid. In this situation, Joe became a person of interest. We all knew that he knew something and he just wasn't telling us. Catching Hardwick red-handed in a stolen car gives police the green light to bring him in for questioning and search the vehicle. During the search of the, the Tahoe, we didn't find any blood or any type of evidence that would relate directly to the crime scene. It's a speed bump for sure, but Elkins hopes a confession may still pave the way to an arrest. And with detectives following every twist and turn, Hardwick's story unfolds like a roadmap. He initially denied being in the vehicle. Joe finally confessed that someone had given him the Tahoe just to ride around in. But when investigators ask for a name, the joyrider seems lost. He couldn't remember the guy's name that gave him the key to ride the vehicle. Detectives up the ante and ask Joe if he knows the car was involved in a homicide investigation. He basically told a friend had given him the car and he parked it and he didn't know anything about anything else. Investigators stay their course. And soon Joe shifts his story like the tides on the Kanawha River. While interviewing Joe, his story changed a couple times. And I, I really believed that it was, it was hard for him to keep up with his stories. And I think the more people lie, the harder it is for them to keep track of their stories. So Detective Elkins decides to put Joe's word to the ultimate test. And spoke with him about taking a polygraph concerning his involvement in, in the murder of Stacey Smith. Joe stated he would be more than happy to come in and take a polygraph because he had nothing to do with it. But once the polygraph gets underway, Joe Hardwick's behavior turns erratic. During the polygraph, Joe became extremely emotional and he was very, very agitated. I wasn't able to perform polygraph examination on him due to his agitation and his emotional state. The aborted polygraph is further proof that Joe knows more than he's letting on. We knew he had gotten the vehicle from someone and he wasn't being honest about the circumstances of that. We knew he wasn't cooperating, so it was really disappointing. With Joe Hardwick refusing to play ball, police book him for driving a stolen vehicle. Elkins decides to personally escort Hardwick to jail and uses the opportunity to have another go at Joe. And I just said, you know, today didn't go the way I wanted it to, hoping he would end up saying something. During our ride, he begins talking, and he says, what do you think I should do? I said, yeah, I think you need to tell the truth. Elkin's appeal strikes a chord with Joe. While he continues to claim ignorance about Stacy's death, Joe admits to receiving a few of her belongings from the man who gave him the car. When we finally get inside the gates, I take him out of the car, and he proceeds to tell me, hey, I can take you to the keys. I can take you to where I threw the phone. Early the next day, detectives pick up Hardwick from jail and let him lead the way like a bloodhound onto a good scent. We go to the area where the Tahoe was parked, where officers discovered it. I let him out of the vehicle and he goes over and he finds the keys under a brown plastic bag. And from there, Joe said, I'll take you to where the phone was. And so we were just ecstatic that we, we was able to get those. Despite leading police to Stacy's cell phone and house keys, Joe has yet to cough up the name of the person he claims gave him Stacy's car. At that time, I said, Joe, are you ready to tell me the truth? And he said, yeah, I'll tell you the truth now. 
And what Joe tells police spins the case in a whole new direction, sending detectives racing off in hot pursuit of a man whose name they've heard once before, out of the mouth of a babe. Two days after Stacy Smith's murder, St. Albans, West Virginia is far from heaven. For locals like reporter Catherine Gregory, they can't believe a hometown angel met such a devilish end. Particularly, you know, she seemed to be a good person, a caring mom. There's no reason why this type of crime, this type of violence should have been brought anywhere near her or her family. Detective Kevin Elkins has a single mission to give this grief-stricken family closure. There's nothing really you can say to make it better or make her quit feeling that pain. The one thing that you can do is try to solve this and get the person that did it. And Detective Elkins and Don Skurlock just may have found their man. Joe Hardwick, the guy they caught driving Stacy's stolen car, could be the key to this case. He's not the killer but he's given detectives the name of a man who may be. He told us that a guy named Timmy Sutherland had given him the keys to the vehicle. Joe claims to have met Timmy and to just been an acquaintance through their use of drugs. But Joe tells detectives that taking the car on a joyride isn't what Timmy had in mind when he gave him the keys. Timmy offered him was between $50 to $75 to get rid of the keys in the car and the cell phone. Joe told me that he had last talked to Timmy that morning, that it was the last time he had seen him. Could Timmy Sutherland be the same Timmy who Stacy's son mentioned at the crime scene? The Timmy whose jacket he was wearing? It's time to find out who this mystery man is. We discovered Timmy Sutherland had been involved in cooking meth and other drug-related charges. We also discovered he was a registered sex offender who was currently wanted for failure to register as a sex offender, which in the state of West Virginia is a felony. Seems detectives have stumbled on a very dangerous dude. But what's his connection to Stacy Smith? Elkins calls Stacy's mother to see if the name Timothy Sutherland rings a bell. And what he learns peals louder than a church tower at noon on Sunday. Timmy's mother is my sister. He ran around with Stacy and her boyfriend. They were together all the time. According to Marlene, Stacy often helped her cousin Timmy. She knew he didn't have nothing. She always took care of him. Stacy even allowed Timmy to crash at her house on occasion. Stacy was that type that she would do without something to make sure he had something. So Marlene can't understand why Timmy would want his kind-hearted cousin dead. It's a question detectives would love to answer, too. But it's not the only one. They're also wondering whether Timmy may have scrawled the writing on Stacy's wall. We kept going back to the cheating whore. So we started thinking, could Timmy have put that on the wall to try to throw us off his track, to try to confuse us and make us think it was her boyfriend? So that was something that started playing in our mind. And there's only one way to find out if their guess is right. Track down Timmy. But that's easier said than done. During this time, we were speaking to his family, still trying to get a location on him. The family hadn't seen or talked to him, and, and you know, they informed us they had no idea where he was staying at. 
With a sex offender and alleged murderer on the loose, detectives waste no time spreading the word about their latest suspect. They open a community tip line. We were asking the public if they had any information to contact us, if they have any indication of where he may be, where he's staying, where he, where he was last seen. The concerned community floods police with promising leads, but also some troubling tips. There was a concern that, that Timmy Sutherland had left uh, the state. We had received tips that he was seen at the Greyhound station. While we had received tips he was seen at the airport. Detectives burned the midnight oil, scanning through thousands of leads. And we tried to uh, put all focus and attention we could on this. We were working 18, 19, 20 hour days to try to get this solved. The dogged detectives finally hit pay dirt. It seems Timmy is holed up in a house on Bear Street. Elkins and Skurlock type the address into their GPS. And when they arrive with their posse, they find it's a mobile home. There were probably 12 to 15 people on scene to ensure that nothing could happen to anybody around there. When detectives search the double-wide, they sniff out Timmy under a pile of dirty laundry. They arrest him on the charge of failing to register as a sex offender. And in the interview room, as detectives prepare to question Timmy, they catch a glimpse of some blood stains on his pants. That blood had dried to the point that it was flaking, which let us know that this hadn't happened within the last few minutes. But whose blood is it? Detectives keep their hottest suspect cooling his heels in jail as they await the answer and try to solve a larger mystery. If Timmy is the killer, why on earth would he do in his kindly cousin? Just a few days after Stacy Smith's murder in St. Albans, West Virginia, all eyes are on suspect Timmy Sutherland. He's now in police custody, waiting for the DNA profile of the bloodstains on his pants. That'll determine his fate. News of his arrest thrills Stacy's friends and loved ones, but something about it baffles reporter Catherine Gregory. I was confused why the words cheating whore were written on the wall. I kept thinking maybe there was something more going on between these two people. Detectives Elkins and Skurlock are thinking the same thing when they question Timmy Sutherland. He denies any involvement in his cousin's death but doesn't mince any words about the person he claims killed Stacy. He talked about how her boyfriend mistreated her, and you could tell that he had a very poor opinion of her boyfriend. But Stacy's boyfriend has already been cleared, so detectives are skeptical when Timmy tells them his version of the evening's events. He starts by admitting he was visiting Stacy on the night of her murder, but then his story gets shaky. Timmy said that there had been a confrontation between Stacy and her boyfriend the night that she was killed, and that he intervened and defended Stacy. He believed that the murder may have been related to that argument. In fact, Timmy goes one step further to prove his innocence and volunteers to take a polygraph. It's like, great, this is a good deal. We'll get you a polygraph examination. 
All's well at the start of the whys and wherefores, but things soon take a turn for the worse when Timmy's nerves get the best of him. Timmy Sullivan became pretty emotional and was unable to continue. During this time, he has to speak to call his mother. Timmy's breakdown convinces investigators he's about to confess, and Detective Skurlock is as wily as a wolf in sheep's clothing. He sweet-talks his stressed-out suspect into coming clean. I basically tried to console Timmy and you know, provide him uh, some reassurance to try to make him feel comfortable. And that's when his wall started to come down. After he was able to get out his emotions of crying, when asked about it, Timmy kind of dropped his head. And after several tense moments, Timmy Sutherland confesses to killing his cousin, Stacy Smith. I was ecstatic because it's like, finally. We ask him, could you take us to where the knife is? Timmy agrees and takes police to the site where he disposed of the murder weapon. So we had went down by Stacy's house, and as soon as you would turn off Carson Street onto Adams, there's a telephone pole and a chain link fence, and he showed us the area that he'd thrown it in. The knife still had blood on it. Police send the bloody knife to the lab for testing, hoping it'll help them cut to the chase and catch Stacy's killer. And it does just that. Crime scene technicians were able to collect DNA off of the knife. It came back to Stacy Smith. And there's more good news for detectives. The crime lab also confirms that the blood on Timmy's pants belonged to Stacy. On December 31st, 2009, Police charge Timmy Sutherland with the first-degree murder of his cousin, Stacy Smith. After Timmy Sutherland's arrest, I think there was a sense of relief for people in the community. It kind of put them a little bit at ease. He was going to go stand trial for what he'd done. It's during the trial that the chilling details of the heinous crime come to light. On December 27, 2009, Stacy's daughter is staying at a friend's house and her son is asleep in his bed. While Timmy, Stacy, and her boyfriend, Spencer Dillon, enjoy some grown-up time, shooting the breeze. They'd been together that night. After her boyfriend leaves, she and Timmy Sutherland begin talking. But the talking soon leads to arguing. During this conversation, he starts expressing how he dislikes her boyfriend. She, in turn, tells him he has no room to judge anybody. He's a junkie. He says he became angry that the only person that ever tried to help him called him a junkie and saw him in negative light. After stewing for a while, Timmy finally explodes. He gets a knife. He makes a decision to go hurt her. He goes into her room, and he plunges a knife in her throat. She tried to get out of the bedroom, but she wasn't able to get far. She ended up collapsing in the doorway. But the calculating killer doesn't want to be caught with blood on his hands. So he works a plan to throw police off his trail. After he stabs her, he has the cognizance to write cheating whore on the wall to try to make it seem like it's not him, it's her boyfriend. After fleeing the crime scene, Timmy meets up with Joe Hardwick and asks for his help getting rid of Stacy's car and her cell phone. And in court, Timmy has a defense for it all. He claims he was high on drugs and wasn't thinking rationally. But the prosecution argues otherwise. If he was on such a wild trip, I don't know how he had the forethought 
to think, well, I've just killed my cousin, so I'm going to write cheating whore on the wall to misdirect the police at the boyfriend. The jury isn't convinced either. And on April 15th, 2010, Timothy Sutherland is found guilty of the first-degree murder of his cousin, Stacy Smith. He's sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. I was absolutely thrilled when the judge sentenced him because I felt like that he got what was due to him. And I was so happy that they did not grant him mercy. Joe Hardwick pleads guilty to accessory to first-degree murder. And in return for testifying against Sutherland, he's sentenced to one-year probation. For rookie detective Elkins, Stacy's murder was a trial by fire. And he came through with an important lesson branded into his brain. Don't get tunnel vision on one person and, and leave the rest, because if that was the case, we could have easily had tunnel vision on her boyfriend and not really paid attention to the rest. As for Stacy's mom, Marlene, she's found a way to cope with her own loss by helping her grandchildren deal with theirs. I've had to be there for the kids because they know this is their home. They know I'm their mama. It has pulled us together closer, brought me closure to some point. As the dust from the murder of Stacy Smith finally settles, Sunshine slowly returns to the tiny town of St. Albans, West Virginia, and to the lives of locals who will always remember their small-town sweetheart. I think the community breathed a sigh of relief when Stacy Smith's murder was solved. The community was able to start saying, okay, we can move on now. We can get past this. 